I guess like the this this new concept called love language now with the with the young people. You know, <laughs> I guess my love language is doing business together. <laughs> or I guess like well, it's a little intricate, right? Because if you do business with somebody, you really have to trust. Your your livelihood with this person. My girlfriend, we started dating 2017, which when she came to the states for college, her first job in California was at a gongja in Sunnyvale.、She、had a lot of ties or a lot of history with the brand, and I would not have done this if it wasn't for her. Fast forward a couple of years, we decided to to go in with a gongja because that's where she worked at. Today on the pod, we have Long Tran, good friend of mine. We met at Apple, where he was already deep into side gigs. Today, Long is an accomplished software engineer, having worked at Apple, Microsoft, Facebook before it was Meta, and now Tesla. But despite all the work experiences that he's accumulated, his goal is to rely not on a W two income by 2030. To achieve that dream, he's also the owner of a Gongcha, rented multiple properties across the United States, and even has a car rental business on Turo. We're gonna get to dive into his origin stories a little bit today, and some of the lessons that he's learned along the way. Before we jump into all this stuff, maybe you can give everyone a quick intro about yourself, where you were born, and your childhood. Thanks, Abe. Was born in Vietnam, Ho Chi Minh City, deep in the south. I moved to the states when I was starting high school. I moved to LA, Torrance area, if you know where that is, and then I went to college in San Diego, and then I moved up to the Bay for work. Twenty sixteen. It's also cool for me to see different sides of the same coin. Really, the quote unquote American dreams, right? How that、yeah. is perceived outside of actual America. So, but yeah, by by day, I I do software for a living. I've been doing software for almost six or seven years now, mostly in the Bay Area. I've only worked at big tech, not because I wanted to college the badge. It just so happens that all the opportunities that that came across my desk were were just from big tech, but. When I talked to Abe a couple of months ago, when we last met, I was really inspired by how you have the, the guts to jump into a startup world. It's something that I always wanted to do, but I never had the the courage to really follow through, or you know, things just kind of come up. Yeah, so super awesome to to hear from, at some point. I'd love to hear about your your startup life. Long from growing up. To high school, then moving over to the U.S. to moving into a tech job. How did education shape your experiences? I was never good at school by the Asian slash Vietnamese schooling standard. Right? To go from fifth grade to sixth grade, you have to do this kind of like entrance exam, where the top top student would get their pick at like the best public school, and then like the less qualified kids like myself would have to. Go to private school, but I would say a huge emphasis was on memorizations and reciting facts, reciting things that that you learn from textbooks. Everybody used the same textbook, like it's like a national program, a national curriculum, right? So everybody studied the same thing. I always knew it wasn't for me for some reason, but like I, I didn't have a choice, I didn't have a way out. The first wake up call was when I, I miserably fail the <laughs> entrance entrance exams to get into sixth high school, to get into sixth grade. So that was when like I. I was like self-esteem all-time low at the time, right? My dad and my mom would have to pay my way through a private school, and because of that, the stigma at the time—maybe it still is, right? You're you're not as smart, right? So you go to private school, and then all of a sudden, at some point, I don't know why, but my parents was like, "Hey, let's just pack up, let's move to the states." 2008, about just before the collapse, right? The financial crisis. So I mean, at the time, I was pretty fed up with with school already. You know, I wasn't doing well.、I、had friends, but they they were just more acquaintances 
other than the actual friends. Yeah, I wasn't really married to, I guess, like the culture. So I was really open to girl. Everybody keeps saying, like, you know, it would be a better future for you. You'll have better education. I came here to start high school immediately. I came here with very little expectation. And, you know, obviously it was pretty easy sell for me because I wasn't succeeding in schooling in Vietnam. So I had very little to lose. For some reason, I, I really liked schooling here. I just felt like this weird sense of freedom, if you will. I was able mm -hmm. to really express a lot of things that I was thinking at a time. Yeah, along what was promised to you in your move from Vietnam to America was the sort of the American dream. I'm wondering, what are some of the milestones or markers in your life that were maybe related to success or money that helped shape you into where you are today? This is a good question. I keep telling people that, hey, I would like to retire by the time I turn 35, right? And then the second most popular follow-up question to that would be, what are you going to do then? People who, who know me would know that I'm not going to sit on the beach somewhere and, and just drink and do nothing, right? I probably would still work on something, right? I don't know what it is yet. That's why like, it's easier just to say, by the time I turn 35, I should not have to rely on a W-2 income anymore. I'm a pretty risk-averse person, to, to be honest, right? So having some sort of stability would allow me to do crazier things. I would really like to go to real estate full-time. Right. I would like to be a syndicator of some sort of like pulling a, 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 yeah, like a capital allocator, if you will, right. Pull monies together for people who don't necessarily have the, the time or the expertise, and then, and then just kind of go create values out of quote unquote, nothing. Right. The way I think about money, the way I think about investing, the way I think about all my side hustles is just, how do I, how do I create values out of, of either nothing or, you know, subpar current conditions, I guess. I'm probably going to play toward my strength, which is strategizing, being super patient, do only a few moves, but make every one of them count. Yeah. When would you say that sort of mindset towards creating value, trying to obtain financial freedom? When do you think that started? Great question. I think I would credit my mom for this. Growing up, I never had to worry about, you know, what to eat the next day, you know, what kind of clothes to where to go for vacation and whatnot. But at the same time, this is pretty contradicting. My mom did an amazing job at convincing me otherwise. <laughs> I was always worried about not having, like she would be like, she always made me feel like if we buy this toy car today, tomorrow somebody in my family is gonna have to, to, to suffer because of that, right? So there's always this trade-off. I, I can't pinpoint how she did it, but Ever since I was a kid, I always had this like really frugal mentality, even though I absolutely did not need to. And then maybe the side effect of that would be, I have this weird rational fear of not having a place to live, like being, I don't know, like, I don't know what really triggered it, but ever since I was a kid, my, my goal was going to college, get a job, buy a house ASAP. Like how we can, how do we shorten this whole thing, right? So I guess to answer your second question, Matt, what was like a big milestone? I would say when I got out of school in 2016, I bought my first house two months after, right? It's a condo in Blossom Hill in South San Jose, if you're, you know where that is. It's a tiny condo, three bed, two baths. Has a lot of story to tell there. My first priority was always getting the roof under my, over, over my head, yeah. right? And then food and then clothing and then cars and then et cetera, et cetera, right? Maslow's pyramid right there. Exactly, right? So, I mean, I didn't know of that concept at, at the time, but now looking back, right? It was like, I, I guess the dude knows what he's talking <laughs> about, you know?
Yeah, so like I guess throughout school, I went to school in UC San Diego, beautiful city, right? I was fortunate enough to to go to San Diego on pretty much a full ride, combined with with my scholarship and financial aid. It was uh, it, it was basically a free ride for me, right? I actually did make some some extra credit, just like that's like a one eighty from your middle school experience, where you had to pay money. Oh to yeah, yeah, for sure, right? hundred percent, hundred percent. Free ride to college, which is a dream. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So it was it was really good. I. Yeah, this whole like confidence was probably toward the end of high school where I realized, okay, I'm actually not stupid. Yeah, I'm obviously not a genius, but I can do things if I just put my mind to it, right? So I think it just kind of like went up from there. Yeah, I was able to to go to school for for free. I was able to live on campus for for the whole four years, and I also was able to work full time during you know my 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 time there. Got a part time job at this company called Broadcom. I was a, a QA tester over there. Broadcom makes chips for your MacBook, your iPhone, and whatnot. They're known in the chips business. I was only 25 minutes away from school, so I would go to school. One of the biggest benefits of, of having the scholarship was the ability to pick classes before everybody else. <laughs> the money was nice for sure, but like my biggest win was the ability to like customize my schedule the way I like it. Right, I would be like the first two people to be able to pick. You have to go to. I don't know if you guys do this at Berkeley. Right, but you guys have some sort of like you know scheduling period, right? And then you have yeah, to, yeah. It's yeah. definitely tough if you're in the bottom part of that scheduling pyramid. Correct, right? But then I would do the the most ironic thing, you know, if you have to first pick, you would pick like a later class, right? You would pick something nice, like uh, I don't know, twelve p.m., like two p.m., right? You pick like a nice, you know, little chunk of time. I would pick the weirdest schedule. I would pick like eight a.m. class and like nine p.m. class or eight p.m. classes, the earliest and the latest class. And this pisses everybody in my 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 suite, my my housemates, right? Because like they are struggling to find the best schedule, and here I am having the ability to pick the best classes. Yet I pick Why the did you worst do that? time. Why did I do that? Well, I wanted to go to work during the day, right? It must have been 2013. I got a job at Broadcom, and I was telling them, "Hey, I'll I'll, I'll work full time on an intern salary. Right, I would go in about nine, ten o'clock in the morning." I'll leave like normal people, like around four or five, right? And then I'll, I'll go to school. And then my, my manager at the time was like, do you go to school? Because you kind of have to go to school to to do this job, to be qualified mm -hmm. as an intern. And I was like, yeah, I, I actually go to school. Yeah, so, so I guess I, I it was double wins, right? I didn't have to pay for school. Yeah, I was also making money on the side, right? So uh, I rinse and repeat this for the entire four years of, of, of college. And by the, time, by, by the time I graduated, I was able to save up enough for a down payment for my for my house right this little condo so you got to tack on what you were doing with that actual dollars and how you were storing well, it <laughs> well it was actually pretty embarrassing i did not do anything with the money because i did not know what to do with it i was so worried about losing it so i literally just shoved it under my mattress like literally like i didn't even deposit it into the bank wait you had under, you had straight cash i had like Tens of thousands of dollars by the time I graduated under a mattress. What I would bill care. was it? Was it like 20s, 100s? No, it was in the hundreds, right? I would straight up look like a drug dealer because I did not wow. know what to do with his money. And I was so, I don't know why. I have a lot of weird, rational fears. I was worried that UCSD would look into my bank account and be like, this guy makes enough money. Let's not give him money anymore. So, <laughs> so I was like, okay, let's just stash it under my bed for a bit, for a couple of years. And again, this is all stupid now that I, you know, that think about it. That would have given it. me so much anxiety. I mean, I didn't have to lock my room every time I went out. But uh, yeah, it was, <laughs> it was pretty weird.
It was pretty weird. Uh, I find your story, the college part, the working part, it resonates. Some parts of it resonate with me, and the other parts I'm like, wow, this is pretty extreme. Well, I sort of see myself in the middle where I had like seven internships throughout college. I took a semester off to work. Definitely not doing full-time work. It was always part-time. But yeah, I, I was also working in high school. There was always some part of me that wanted to work. But I wonder, I wonder for myself, I look back at those college years and, you know, go, when I was in college, I would constantly remind myself, like, these are supposed to be your top four years of your life. Like, that's the, that's what people say. And then I was like, is it really this, is it really supposed to be, is it supposed to be uh, the best four years? And um, looking back, I don't, I don't necessarily have regrets on working those jobs. Maybe, you know, actually, I wish maybe I took some classes that weren't part of the core requirements that I just was curious about. So I'm wondering for you, given that you, you're working literally full time, it seems like you optimize your entire schedule and also your like eating habits around saving money and maximizing dollars. Looking back, do you wish, is there anything you wish you did differently? More time with, with friends or anything like that? Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's the question I got the most actually while going to school. Right, people, people didn't quite understand where I was most of the time, and then some people who knew, they were super confused as to like why I gotta push so hard. Uh, mm-hmm. What was it pushing for? I, I'm a generally a pretty introverted person, so the friends part wasn't super bothering to me. I guess bothersome to me. It was definitely lonely for at times. Right, I, I was dating my current girlfriend. When 2014, yeah, so second year of college, so that definitely helped, right? Like she's, she's, we were dating internationally too, so we can go into that if you guys yeah. interested. But like, yeah, having that support was super, super helpful. Looking back, I don't think I, I really regret it. I would probably have done the same baseline thing again, but I would definitely not leave my money under the mattress. <laughs> definitely would have, definitely would have, would have totally do something more productive with it. It was pretty natural, you know. Like I felt like, it, yeah, I got to do this because you know. Yeah, why not? Like, why wouldn't I do this, right? Yeah, so so no regrets there. Met really cool people along the way as well. I, I, I didn't make a whole lot of friends, but the people who I, I did stay friends with, I'm going to the wedding soon, right? So I guess, yeah, I guess being an introvert person, it, it kind of helped out there a little bit, right? Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, I guess I just want to take that one step out of college now. You've gone from someone who literally stores cash under your mattress, worked a ton to immediately graduating college and be able to buy your first home. Where did you learn to do that? And yeah, how did you learn to invest and how did you learn to, to buy that first home? What was that step? Right. So the first home, it was definitely a milestone, but it wasn't a mentality milestone, right? It was more, I got it to do this to satiate my, my need, <laughs> right? To my basic need, right? Which is housing, which is like the bottom layer, right? You kind of need to get a roof over your head first. I didn't really look at it as an investment. I just literally saw it as a place to, to live. And then at the time I was working at Apple, I was drinking a Kool-Aid pretty hard. It's going to be, be Apple-like for, for life, you know, <laughs> like, you know, all of that good stuff, right? At some point, I felt like it was pretty confining. Like this whole mindset of, I was always worried about, honestly, I wasn't making that much at Apple compared to other engineers, right? I don't know if you noticed, Dave, but I did not get RSU at my first year because I did not I know, know what that. RSU was. I did not know what RSU was, right? I just went to, to Apple because it was my dream company. Did you just take whatever offer they gave you and it just well, happened to not have you, RSUs? 
Correct. Because, well, people in college were saying, you know, like you, you make six fig right out of school when you, when you work at this big tech company, right? I mean, like, I think my, my starting base was like literally hundred K. So that was six fig. So I thought, okay, well that's six fig. There we go. Right. I made it right. <laughs> Little did I know later on that I was way too eager. Right. <laughs> at, I didn't know you could negotiate, by the way, like, you know, growing up, yeah. right. When you get a job and if you're not, you get a job, right. You, you don't ask for how much you pay. You ask mm -hmm. what you need to do. Right. And then you wait for your, your paycheck to arrive and you move on with your life. Right. So kind of growing up, I never, I mean, I never really have to negotiate anything. Right. I would kind of like take what was given to me. Right. So it was really eye opening when, when I learned about this whole RSU concept and how I missed out on the whole thing. So it's kind of sad. It's kind of sad thinking about it, but you know, it was a good life lesson. Yeah. So after, after realizing I could have made a lot more money, I always had this fear of like, okay, what if I'm not going to be able to make enough money to cover my, my mortgage, my monthly payment, right? What if I need to go on a trip or I want to spend time with my girlfriend? How do I, how do I afford this without breaking or without missing the, the monthly payment? Right. So. At, at the time, for, for, for a short amount of time, it was a lot of fear, right? A lot of uncertainty, right? Like, did I, did I just screw up? Did I just like throw money into this whole thing? I did rent out my place, the, the first house that I bought with two randoms, and it did help cover the mortgage. But at some point, I was just like, man, this is such a, such a rat race, right? So I guess I experienced what a rat race was pretty early on. Mm -hmm. uh, and then I think like most people who were exposed to like the fire movement, right? I'm sure you guys all heard of the Rich Dad, Poor Dad book, right? The, the TLDR there is literally, there's this concept of bad debt and, and good debt, right? And then a lot of people, especially Asian people, right? Are, are really afraid of debt, right? And I guess like the living in Vietnam or living in other places that, that, that are not the US, I, I can understand why you would be so afraid of debt, right? But the book was kind of the trigger point for me where I was like, okay, I was able to buy a property with only a fifth down, right? 20% down. And the, the, the interest at the time was only like two or 3%. Looking back. Wow, now we know how low that is. Now, like now we know how low that is. Exactly. Right. And then like I recently, or a couple of years ago, I looked at like the historical rate, you know, parents time, probably like in the two digits easily. Right. Yeah. So anyway, so I got out of this mentality of like bad debt, boring, like being fierce, being feared of debt, right? So Tell us got a little bit more debt. about the, yeah. the concept of good debt, bad debt for the people listening here. For sure. Bad debts are used as a generic term to categorize everything that we owe, right? Credit card debt, you know, bank, bank debt, mortgage, all that stuff, student loans, right? All those are bad debts. Any financing that you have to pay for, an, for anything that doesn't produce any sort of values, right? A car does not any produce any sort of values for you monetarily speaking, right? And actually, on that same token, a house isn't really an asset by by definitions, right? Unless it appreciates, or if you rent it out to other people and produces more income, right? You you basically need to make more money from the amount of financing, the interest that you pay on on to finance that that whatever asset, quote unquote, right? So that's why sometimes people say, you know, your house is your biggest investment. Well. Really depends on how you look at your house, right? Yeah, I think that's such a key concept to highlight. Like debt inherently is leverage. And if you yep. leverage in a direction that drags you down, it'll drag you down faster than you can believe. But if you leverage in a way that you're utilizing that debt to make money, then you can use, like you said, one fifth of your money to have appreciation on a home that's five times that worth.
So sure. yeah, I think you're someone who's really discovered the unlock power of having good debt on your side and right. you've structured your big purchases around that. Right. And, and it's actually very unique to, to the state mostly, right? Like in other countries where the currency isn't super stable, like you can't, I don't think you can do this in Venezuela, for example, right? I think people in the state kind of take this for granted a little bit. I don't think you can buy an asset with only 10, 15, 20% down, right? And having that leverage, that's very underrated. Yeah. Can you tell us about then, so you, you bought that first home, you started living in it, but I know you also got into a bunch of other homes that you started buying. What yeah. is that you like? And can you break down that, that research and maybe some of the financials even doing that? Yeah, for sure, for sure, for sure. At this point, right, I was, I was renting out two rooms in my house, right? It was a three bed, two, two baths. So I live in a master, I have my own bathroom. And then the other two were just like month to month. I would find people on Craigslist or Facebook group or at the time. Can you give us the numbers? Like what was the total mortgage? Because I yeah. hear about like house hacking and how you can yes. come out net neutral I, or I, sometimes even positive. I guess what I was doing was, was house hacking. My monthly payment was probably around 2K some change, right? I would rent two rooms. One would go for 950 and the other one for 1100. So I pulled in about 2K a month. So mm -hmm. effectively my monthly, my monthly cost was a couple hundred dollars to get there. I live in the Bay area yeah. at, at less than a grand a month. Even a couple of years ago, it was still pretty good, right? At the time I was like, okay, if I could do this for two rooms in my house, why can I do this for a lot more rooms? And that's why I started doing some research. That's when another friend of mine at Apple, this guy named Matt, Matt's from Ohio. Matt is a couple years older than me. He had then moved from, from Ohio from like a 60K, 70K job to Apple. So he's finally joined Big Lee, right? And then we, he sat behind me, the Anza at the time. Yeah. So he was, he was, was just nice. Nice guy, right? He's from Ohio. He was really into coffee. So we went out for coffee one weekend and just kind of talked about interest. And then he was actually the first person who, who brought me into, exposed me to this fire idea, right? Financial independence, retire early, right? And this guy follows fire principle to the T, right? Like he's a couple of years older than me. He super, super low maintenance. He doesn't spend on a lot of things. We were talking about when to retire, you know, how could we retire? The math we did that one evening, at some random coffee shop in San Jose downtown was if you put enough money into an index fund, like just doesn't have to be like fancy, just like spy, like SP 500, you put a million, a million and I don't know, like 400 K, well, let's say 1.5, right. And you live off the, let's say assuming 7% interest rate or like a return on, on average, right. He, he deduced that he could live off about 4% and then reinvest the other 3%, right. So how'd you get to to 1.4, that was like the big questions, right? So that's when we, we were working backward on how to get ourselves to 1.4 in the market, right? So I told him about the whole house hacking thing, right? And then we, we kind of mold on it and then we, we talked about how to, how to actually replicate this process in a state that actually will yield some cash flow. So then next thing we knew, Matt's family is actually in real estate. His mom is actually a real estate agent. His sister works at the tax office or whatever in Ohio. So I was like, wait, wait, on. this whole time we were talking and your whole family's in real estate. And like, what? Like, we only bring it up now? What the heck? So 2019 Thanksgiving, we flew over to Ohio to meet with his mom and his mom's best friend, who's also our agent. The general idea is 
will buy a bunch of properties, right? And then we'll not eat from the profit. We'll, we'll buy a bunch of, say, 10 properties, right? And then use all the proceeds, all the profits from all 10 of them to pay off maybe, say, the first, the first one, right? So once you've done that, at some point, you cut down your 30-year loan, which is a pretty standard loan in, in, the, in the States, right? You cut down from 30-year down to seven, eight, eight years, right? And then after that, it, there's a snowball effect start happening, right? You're, you accumulate enough cash, you can you accumulate enough cash flow. Your your subsequent houses are paid off significantly faster than the previous one, right? So I think the according to our, our simulations, we were if we were to get ten houses, two per every year, right? Starting from 2019 to say 2024 next year, right? We just buy two houses every year. By the time we get to ten, we should be able to. I guess to pay off the whole portfolio by the time we turn 40 or something like that, right? So all in all, way less than 30 years, right? And we, we didn't really have to do anything other than putting down the down payment, right? The cash flow every month will come in and it will be more than enough or just enough to cover, I guess, like all the expenses and whatnot, right? So we did the math and it was like, okay, this seems pretty feasible, right? So we would, we then went ahead and execute on, on this since 2019. So we are currently in our property number nine then we just closed on number nine congrats we yeah thanks we we got hit by the interest rate a little bit hard this year so otherwise we would have been able to to get all 10 like planned but we're a little behind schedule for sure how did you set your because you just mentioned retirement just thinking about and the goal is to retire by 35 is that just like sort of in the sand or is there some symbolism in, in yeah it's just like i just work backward i i figure out how much money i would need was like the gross amount of money that I would need every month, take it off, some tax, give the IRS some of that. Well, actually a lot of that. <laughs> and then, you know, like multiply that by the average return from my whole portfolio. Right? And that's how I arrived at yeah, whatever that number was. Yeah, I feel like a lot of the sort of personal finance community is all about maximizing net worth. And then yeah. I've had to think about the other way of like, how do you minimize spend? Yep. Not through like necessarily min like minimalism or just slashing like giving away all my stuff, but more so like really asking the tough questions of what do I actually value. I'm curious, what is your number, your monthly burn that you have sort of projected out? I probably need about fourteen grand a month for for living expense. I would definitely cover for my family, right? I, again, I don't spend on a whole lot of things. I mean, wear a black t-shirt every day. I have to buy these guys. But I guess like, I'm pretty neurotic in the sense that like, I was thinking about things like what happens if my family can't provide for them. So what if all my brothers, so, I don't know, God forbid, something happens to them, right? And then tomorrow they can't work anymore. Who's going to foot the bill, right? My parents are getting old too. I mean, I'm sure they will be able to take care of themselves, right? None of this, I think, will, will be necessary. But like deep, deep down, I always have this weird neurotic, fear like recall have a lot of irrational fears it's, it's interesting to hear you actually put some numbers to it because it sounds like you're also self-aware of some of these irrational fears like you you yes. call them irrational fears yourself and you know if you take that 14k a month number that you're shooting for and then you probably if i just had to guess you're probably somewhere between three to six k a month well you're probably like spending three to five k a month and the interesting thing for me was in December when I was looking at how much cash I had preparing to take this sabbatical, I 
did a spread, you know, very basic spreadsheet. None of this like fancy real estate math you guys do. But it's interesting after actually quitting, I'm spending far less than I estimated. And so I was like reflecting why, why was I off? You know, it's not actually good to be wrong. I mean, it's nice to have the buffer, but like ideally you'd be close to your estimation. And I realized like I just started cutting out spending on things that were like remedial spending or cope spending for the job that I wasn't truly fulfilled by. It sounds like you you explained that delta between 14K and whatever you're currently spending sort of as this like protective measure. Yeah. Yes. Is, is that delta something you're working, you're going to work towards closing the gap on or are you more focused on hitting that that 14k a month number which you already sort of recognize on your own is is a probably need i'll just set the bar a little higher than than necessary and then like you know if i miss it hopefully i'll still end up at a, a much higher and usually how i operate right i just set moonshot goals and then you know if i hit it I hit it if i don't probably still end up you know hitting at a, a higher bar than i probably would have otherwise yeah, no, I totally agreed on on what you said, Matt, about minimizing your spend. I think one of the things that's really important about spending in general is I don't really try to like. Doesn't matter how much money I have, that should not inflate my 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 living standards, right? A lot of my friends who have gone into working at these really successful positions, I've, I've witnessed them inflate their lifestyle quite a bit. Right. And if you make a dollar more, you spend an extra 75 cents, for example, right? Like you're, you're scaling your income, your earning potential linearly with your, with your spending rate. And I just don't feel like that's sustainable, right? Even if I make a lot more money, I probably would still, like I wear the same sort of clothes, actually, if not worse than I am now that I'm making more. But yeah, I feel like the most important thing is to, to not skim on things that will make you happy. Even you save five dollars on fills or on coffee every day, you're not going to become a millionaire. I would just rather figure out how to make an extra five bucks a month or a day. If I were to like generalize my my life, the right having the option yeah. to do something is super important to me. Right? Sure, I have an option to drive Ferrari, but I choose not to do it so that I can prioritize other things. Right? On that note, long of driving the Ferrari, I think I'd be missed to not ask you about this. But you're clearly a person that really likes to go pursue things that make you happy. You're also one that likes to make investment decisions. So I think you found the perfect mix of that when you set up your Turo car business. You know, you've got a Model Y, a Model 3, a Porsche now. Can you tell me a bit about if that brought you some joy to be able to own these and also maybe just some of the economics of it and if there was any painful moments of having a car rental business? Yeah, let's start with the pain. I'm going through one right now. Model 3 got totaled the other month. Some renter just did a little fender bender and the, the, the insurance company deemed it too expensive to, to, to repair. I would have to call them on the way to, into work. I don't want to start my day arguing with them. So yeah, there's been a lot of that. You know, sometimes I get smokers in a car, right? You know, that's a kind of destroyer car. It's just really, I have this emotional attachment to these cars. And I feel like it's somebody hurt my kids. Those are the pain points, the low lights, but highlights are, are, are also great. The whole thing started because I had another Apple coworker of mine. All my business partners are from Apple for some reason. It was driving in a Lotus Elise at the time. And you know, I remember getting into the car and I was like, man, like, I don't know anything about cars, but I just know I really like them. So like, can you teach me how to like change oil? Can you teach me how to like do all these car things? Right. At the time I was trying to impress my girlfriend, you know, cause like, you know, guys should know car things. But then I realized I actually really enjoyed them around 2019 around, 
like Tesla was actually getting pretty popular at the time. And my friend Mike, Mike and I, we we bought our first Model Three. We started to we started putting on on this platform called GetAround and Turl. The economics of things were exactly like my Ohio houses, right? The game plan is identical, except once you don't you once you don't rent doors, you rent cars, right? The same exact principle applied, right? We don't eat from the profit. Hopefully we make enough money to cover the monthly payment payment and then some. Use that money to pay off the first car, rinse and repeat. And what's working against us with the car business is unlike real estate, we don't have appreciation, right? Cars depreciate a lot faster. Thankfully the Teslas are, are, are not as bad. But the same principle applied, right? We actually we should be done with the first car, paying off the first car model three, probably the end of this year, right? Well, had it not been total, we would have been done by now. I was talking to Mike, we were daydreaming about how to get to a level where we can drive like really nice car, look like a douche. <laughs> and, and then just kind of like enjoyed it, right? Yeah, and then we, we couldn't figure out a, a more financial responsible way of, of doing that, right? So we moved from a Model 3, we then bought a Boxster, a Porsche Boxster, and then we sold the Boxster because it was way too too expensive to maintain. And we move on to Model Y. So we are recently a fleet of three cars. We've got to explore you growing up, figuring out that you, you could do the school thing from stashing money under a bed and not knowing how to invest it to then purchasing nine homes and also three to four cars. It's all really seemed like it's come to a, a head now with your latest purchase, which is seemingly one of the most complex ones so far. You just started a goncha shop in Hayward over in the East Bay in California. Can you tell me a little bit about that decision? Originally, it was mostly for my girlfriend. She she obviously had a huge stake in this, and I would not have done this if it wasn't for her. She's obviously a, a sharp businesswoman, and she's a great operator. Backstory here is we were dating since I was the second year in college. Yeah, coming up on on. Nine years, yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, so she was in Vietnam. We actually grew up in the same neighborhood. We started dating 2014. We knew we knew of each other before. Our family knew, knew of each other as well. But yeah, didn't, didn't start dating until 2014. International dating since 2014. I came back to Vietnam in summer to kind of like you know, hang wow. out. So high school, right? We met way, way back when, one summer when I came back and then we started dating. 2017 was when she came to, to the States for, for college. Yeah, so her first job in California was was at a gong in Sunnyvale, very close to where we used to work at the, the Apple campus. She learned English on the job. She learned that, unlike me, she was very extroverted and really good with people, right? Like where I make up for my IQ, she would make up for her EQ, right? She's a super sharp person. Fast forward a couple of years, last year in 2022, right after COVID was winding down, it was me, her, and then another partner of mine, this guy used to work with me at Apple and then Facebook. We became coworkers again and again, and then now we're in this venture together. So we, we decided to, to go in with a gongcha because that's where she worked at, right? So it was super easy for, for her to get into the room with with the franchisers, right? And then they loved her story. They loved how she was obviously a shift shift supervisor at that Sunnyvale. Now you know we are actually going to be really good operators, right? When I met her years ago, I just knew that I would like to do business with this person. I guess like the this is new concept called love language now with the with the young people. You know, <laughs> I guess my love language is doing business together, <laughs> or I guess like well. It's a little intricate, right? Because if you do business with somebody, you really have to trust 
your your livelihood with this person. And I, I don't think there's an, there's anything else that say I trust you more than going to, to business together. We had a lot of ties or a lot of history with the brand. We both liked the brand. She worked at another locations, right? And then the franchisor is also located in the Bay Area. I have a really specific question on Gong Cha. Yeah. If you look at a menu, right, there's all these different teas. I had fruit, there's different toppings like boba and grass jelly and stuff. What is the configuration of a drink that would yield the highest margin? Most of the drinks usually make the same amount of money. The biggest, I guess, contributor to profit or bottom line would be how you control your other costs, right? Your labor and your, your real estate costs are the two biggest factors, right? We purchased the ingredients directly from, from Gongcha. So there's very little things that we can control there, right? So all the ingredients are already fixed price. In order to make more money, we need to control our labors. We need to find a nice place that's not too expensive. We need to pay enough people. We can't pay too many people. Yeah, so it's all in the other, I guess, operational costs, if that makes sense. Cool. Well, Long, in closing here, you've had a bunch of interesting experiences now since moving to the States and starting your businesses and working. Do you have any advice for someone who is just getting started, let's say a new grad out of college on how they should think about personal finance and investing and what kind of steps they should be taking? The number one thing to do is to find something that you're really good at, optimize for that, or at least spend most of your time producing, right? increasing income, minimizing your, your expenses. At some point, there will be a tipping point where you make enough money, you make enough good decisions, and then you can afford to do what you actually enjoy. The conventional wisdom is, you know, follow your dreams, do what you're passionate about, et cetera, et cetera, right? I, I think that only works for people who, who the, the, the fortunate few, who happen to make good money from the things that they actually also enjoy, right? If you're in a situation where you're really good at doing something you don't love, I feel like temporarily in your 20s, that's the time to really hustle. If you enjoyed that episode, please like and subscribe. We're just getting started to tell the stories of these amazing creators, athletes, and entrepreneurs. Drop a comment below on what was your favorite part of this episode and stay tuned because we're going to be releasing new episodes every two weeks for On The Rise. See you next time.